Hey everyone, what's going on? Welcome to a brand new edition of the Save Yourself Podcast on the Ambiguous Podcast Solutions. Right now, I'm going to be bringing you the latest and greatest going on around the world of Hollywood. Some things I want to talk about today, I'm going to be getting into some trending trailers that have come out over the last few days. Some conversations going on with Deborah Snyder in regards of Zack Snyder's Justice League and some of the inside information that she has on the productions that they did in October. Was it really a whole bunch of scenes? Was it one scene? We'll get into that uh, as well. I'm also going to be getting into more more information regarding the Gina Carano firing. Some more information has come out about the lead up to her being let go and also of course what they plan to do Lucasfilm that is for the Cara Dune character and a whole lot more. But the first thing that I do want to talk about is getting into award season a little bit and the Writers Guild Awards were announced a few days ago. The nominations were and the WGA is again a big component of what could happen on nomination morning come March 15th for the Academy Awards but sometimes you had to take them with a little bit of a caveat because there are qualifications that come about that sometimes omit some big players that come into this award season but sometimes you can get a few films that maybe you'd think that didn't really have a lot of momentum but they can shoot up right in these kind of award nominated bodies like the DGA the, the the SAG Awards and really kind of make a little bit of a late push and that seems to be the case when it comes to these nominations so for the ones for best original screenplay the nominees were Judas and the Black Messiah, Palm Springs, Promising Young Woman, Sound of Metal, and The Trial of Chicago 7 were nominated for Best Original Screenplay, and the Best Adapted Screenplay nominees were Borat's subsequent movie film, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, News of the World, One Night in Miami, and The White Tiger. And some of the films that were were omitted and didn't qualify for the WGA were some of the big frontrunners, again, that I think you could see land a nomination on March 15th, which is Nomadland, Mank, The Father, and Minari. And those are some of the major frontrunners for these screenplay nominations. But I think because of the, the credit, if it's not, I believe it's a certain percentage that they don't have, they're not able to qualify. It's a very wishy-washy kind of qualification rule that they have that I think one day we'll probably do away with in the future. I don't know if it's the immediate future or the extended future, but one day I think people will look into that that caveat and see that it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. But again, it's in place right now. And for the nominees that are in, when we look at Best Original Screenplay, I think, of course, the, the big surprise is Palm Springs. I think that has kind of become a little bit of a of an awards indie darling that nobody I think really expected to come through other than maybe the Golden Glows because of its comedy categories. But in terms of its Oscar potential, I don't see it really going that far. Maybe some below the line technical awards maybe, but nothing for best screenplay or best picture. Because when you look at something like a screenplay nomination, that is one of the main indications of being a major player for a best picture win. If you win a screenplay, whether it's original or adaptation, that usually indicates that, okay, you are a front runner to potentially win a best picture Oscar. And for Palm Springs, I don't even think it's gonna get close to a nomination, but for Judas and the Black Messiah, this is a huge injection into their arm because other than Daniel Kaluuya getting a bunch of nominations from the Golden Globes and the SAGs and from other critics awards bodies as well, the film 
is slowly starting to get its consideration, especially now that it's out on HBO Max for everybody to see. I think that you're going to see a big momentum push for this film, and I wouldn't be surprised if you see it in Best Picture. I don't know if Lakeith Stanfield is going to get a Best Acting nomination, but Screenplay Director, I think Shaka King could potentially be in contention for that as well. And again, like I was talking to Jason a few weeks ago, and I've been saying... Out of all the second half films that have come out in the early part of this year for award season, I think Judas and the Black Messiah is the one that can really shake up a lot of the frontrunner status for a lot of films right now. So again, this is a huge, huge, huge forward momentum for this film going forward. Same thing with Promising Young Woman. A lot of people have been wondering if this was really a, a legit contender. And I think last week or the, a few weeks ago, two weeks, I think, when it was nominated for Globes and the SAG Award for Carrie mulligan i think it solidified that it really is a perennial player during this season and i think for an original screenplay nomination for emma flanell she's in contention for directing nomination too and i think this also solidifies that the screenplay nomination could very well go into effect for her when we get nominations announced on monday morning on march 15th so that's one to look for same thing with trial of the chicago seven that's an easy one i think that's the front runner in terms of getting nominated. It's Aaron Sorkin. It's one of the best films of the year. People have been loving it. It's one of the top three films that are in contention for major awards this season. So I think that is an easy bet. And for Sound of Metal, again, that's one that's up in the air. That's in the bubble. Could it get a lot of nominations? Could it not? It seems like Riz Ahmed is the only really kind of solidified front runner to get a nomination for best actor for that movie and could be really the face of it but I think for original screenplay this is definitely boding well for it but again when you look at Nomadland or even something like a Mank those are still films that are in contention but again didn't qualify that you do have to consider come Academy Award nomination time for best original screenplay so I think this is a huge shot in the arm for Judas and the Black Messiah. I think this is a huge shot in the arm for Promising a Woman. And this is just business as usual for the trial of Chicago 7 when it comes to best original screenplay. Now, for best adapted screenplay, there are a few surprises that are in store for this category, specifically Borat's subsequent movie film and The White Tiger. The, the White Tiger is, again, one of those fringe fringe candidates that has come about from Netflix. And it's it's kind of been, can it, can it not? And it really hasn't made a lot of noise so far. It didn't get anything at the Globes, nothing for the SAG Awards, nothing even really in the critic circles as well. But for it to actually get a, a WGA nomination, again, it, that's a pretty big deal. And I don't think it's going to make a whole lot of noise when it comes to nominations nomination time for the Academy Awards, but it's nice to kind of see get recognized for what I've heard is a really good film because of its screenplay and the story that it tells. For Borat's subsequent movie film, this is another one that just continues to gain momentum. And other than Maria Bakalova for Best Supporting Actress, she's been getting, she's really been the face of this film's awards campaigning, but it did get, and won, the Golden Globe for Best Film, and it also got a nomination, excuse me, in 2006 for the first film for Borat's subsequent movie, or for the first Borat. So, again, this is more of, other than Maria Bakalova, anything else for Borat in terms of above-the-line approach is fringe at best, and for this, for Borat's subsequent movie to film to get a nomination, 
I think is a huge, huge bet for what we could get come nomination morning. But again, something like The Father, which did not qualify, could very well take that spot in the long run or the same thing taking a spot of the White Tiger when it comes to March 15th. Marini's Black Bottom, News of the World, One Night Miami, those ones I'm really not that surprised about. I think, again, in terms of frontrunner status, the fact that One Night Miami did get in here solidifies it to at least be in my number one slot of getting a nomination but also winning when it comes to getting a Best Adapted Screenplay nomination and potentially win at the Academy Awards. But overall, I think this is a really good list, some really interesting surprises. And again, I think the big winner throughout all of this really is Judas and the Black Messiah, because again, I think that is the major film that could really shake up a whole lot of stuff, not just in Best Supporting Actor for Daniel Kaluuya, but again, for Best Picture, even below the lines, like Best Production Design, Best Costume Design, Best Cinematography, Best Original Song. There's a lot of things that I think Judas can shake up and change in this award season model that we have not seen yet. And this is only continuing the momentum for award season. We're really in the thick of it now. We're not just turning the wheel slowly. We are officially on the on board for this year's award season. And we have the Golden Globes coming up next week, which is kind of crazy because it just felt like last week we just did the Golden Globe nomination. So this is really starting to come at a head for a lot of things. And we're going to be analyzing a lot of stuff moving forward. There's going to be a lot more Gill nominations that come up, including the, the DGA, which is going to really kind of tell us what we can expect, what kind of craziness we can expect in the directing category for the Oscars. Because if there's one wild card when it comes to predicting any, uh, well, especially predict nominations for best director that it, it's usually that is always a wild card of somebody you didn't expect getting into a slot and really kind of shaking up the entire season for better or for worse so we'll see if that's the case this award season as well but when it comes to the writers Again, some surprises, some solidifications with some films, but also some films that did not qualify that you still have to consider moving forward for nomination morning on March 15th for the Oscars. Specifically, Nomadland, Mank, The Father, Minari. Those are the four that have really made headway and have been consistent throughout this award season so far and are ones to look out for when it comes to a screenplay nomination. But what did you guys think about the WG? nominations. Did you think that they were the best ones? Do you think there were any snubs? Do you think that they got them right? Which one do you think is a big winner with getting a nomination? Let me know what you think and leave your thoughts below. Now I want to move on to my trending trailer topics, and I haven't really done this in a while. There's been one trailer maybe throughout the week that we talk about, but to get a bunch of trailers in really one day is exciting, and we finally got that, and I'm going to start out with really kind of the big one that I really thought made a big first impression with its teaser trailer, and that is for the latest live-action adaptation, taking a character from the Disney Animated Vault and putting it into a live-action, real, in-person film, and that is taking the iconic villain Cruella de Vil 
and kind of making her own origin story in the film Cruella. It is directed by Greg Gillespie and it stars Emma Stone in the title role, Emma Thompson, Mark Strong, and Paul Walter Hauser. And this is the synopsis for Cruella that was given by Walt Disney Studios. Academy Award winner Emma Stone stars in Disney's Cruella, an all-new live-action feature film about the rebellious early days of one of cinema's most notorious and notoriously fashionable villains, the legendary Cruella de Vil. Cruella, which is set in 1970s London amidst the punk rock revolution, follows a young grifter named Estella, a clever and creative girl determined to make a name for herself with her designs. She befriends, befriends excuse me, a pair of young thieves who appreciate her appetite for mischief, and together they are able to build a life for themselves on the London streets. One day, Estella's flair for fashion catches the eye of Baroness Von Hellman, a fashion legend who is a devastatingly cheek and terrifyingly hot, played by two-time Oscar winner Emma Thompson. But the relationship sets in motion a course of events and revelations that will cause Estella to embrace her wicked side and become the raucous fashionable and revenge bent Cruella and along with the trailer there were two posters that came out that gave off this very punk rock vibe which I I think kind of goes along with what we got for the trailer and I'm somebody who really wasn't looking not really looking forward to but I just really wasn't interested in this film whenever it was going to come out which is set right now for May 28th release date I was going to go see it and make up my mind as I was watching it, but it wasn't something that I was eagerly anticipating like other recent live action adaptations like Lion King or Aladdin. I was looking forward to those. This one, I was I was kind of like what I was with Maleficent. I, it looks it looks eh, but we'll see when I actually do see it in theaters. And this trailer actually surprised me. And for a teaser trailer, the big thing for the first trailer, the teaser that you want to do is if you want to catch the eye for people. And for people that may not know what this film is, if they see this and they become intrigued by it, that is the first major step for a good marketing campaign. I think that's what Cruella did. And the the big thing, the big thing that I took away from this is it wasn't at all what I was expecting. And if you were to tell me that Greg Gaspelli, I believe that that's the name, Greg Gaspelli was directing this, I wouldn't believe you. Because if you were to, if I didn't know who was directing this, I thought it would have been Tim Burton directing this film because it has that Tim Burton flair, the costumes, the vibe. It's very dark and sinister while having some slight comedic, like under comedic tones to it. It wasn't overtly comedic like you would see at least right now in a Disney trailer. And it it just reminded me of something like a a Dumbo or a a, a Beetlejuice in a way. It It was very sinister, not exactly at all what I was expecting. Emma Stone, by the way, seems like she's just loving everything she's doing in this role. She's an absolutely incredible actress. I feel like we really haven't seen her in a while. So to kind of see her take on this big starring role is incredible. And I think she does a very good job in telling this origin story of Cruella and just eating up the the, the scenery and just kind of being this very posh and 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 very rebellious kind of person. 
I think is really cool, and I can't wait to see the chemistry between her and Emma Thompson. Seems like it could be something really special. Having Paul Walter House play one of the criminals is going to be interesting, and I'm really also curious if this film will will obviously be the origin story of Cruella DeVille, but if it will have any kind of linkage to being the film that you should see before watching something like a 101 Dalmatians, or are we just going to get little Easter eggs, kind of like what, what, what we got in this trailer where we see Dalmatians growling at her but is are those the only things we're going to get an indication of linking to the films that we know from the disney vault of 101 dalmatian so a lot of questions that i think are very very intriguing and again when it comes to these trailers for these big blockbuster big time movies that we're supposed to get because we're still in the, the midst of a pandemic one of the big things that we look to is the release date what because we want to see if it gives an indication of the studio's mentality with putting out this film and the fact that they are putting out a trailer like this right now maybe gives a little bit of a confidence that they are going to release this in theaters or are they going to do something else and it seems like right now with the information that they give us at the end of the trailer even though they don't say may 28 2021 they do say coming in may of 2021 and one of the rumors that came out before disney's investor day was that we were going to get the announcement that Cruella would be one of the films that would shift from a theatrical release to a Disney Plus, and that didn't seem to be the case. So maybe that will not happen, but it could happen. Again, it gives Disney the window of in a few weeks saying, you know what, we don't think the pandemic will be better for people to go back to movies by May. We'll put this thing on Disney Plus, or maybe they'll do a hybrid like they're doing with Raya and The Last Dragon in a few weeks, going to theaters, but also doing a Disney premiere access of paying an additional $30 to watch the film. So they could go uh, three different routes. They could go the Moolah route of, and Ryan the Last Dragon. They could go the route of Soul and just put it on Disney Plus for no additional cost than what you would need to, to subscribe to the service. Or they could just go the, the theatrical route and say we're going to put it out in theaters in May or move it to another release date. So there's multiple different avenues that they can go in. But when it comes to the trailer, I was impressed. I was intrigued. And again, for a teaser trailer, that is exactly what you are supposed to do for a first trailer, for a teaser trailer. Again, no pun intended. Tease what you what you want people to see. Get them excited, intrigued, and then have them hanging by a thread for the next marketing material that you're going to put on there, aka the first full-length trailer that we should maybe get in the next few months if this will come out in May, specifically May 28th of this year. What did you guys think of the Cruella trailer? Did you enjoy it? Did you not enjoy it? Did it intrigue you? Did it not intrigue you? Did it impress you? Were you on the fence of seeing this movie? Or if you have no desire like I did at first, but this trailer put a desire in you to see this film or intrigued you to see this film, let me know in the comments section and leave your thoughts. And the the other big trailer that we saw this week was the first trailer, finally, for Mortal 
Mortal Kombat, which will be both in theaters and on HBO Max on April 16th. It's directed by Simon McQuoid and also produced by James Wong. And a lot of people were, were asking, when are we going to get a Mortal Kombat trailer? When's this movie come, coming out? When are we going to see footage for it? Because it was supposed to come out on January 26th, I believe, before this whole pandemic thing started and we didn't see any footage for it. So we knew that it was going to be pushed off a few months from that release date. And finally, we get an idea of what this film is going to be about. And if you're a fan of this franchise, it's based off of a video game. For me, I've played Mortal Kombat here and there, but I don't really have a full in-depth knowledge of this franchise so i really went into this trailer knowing some of the characters a little bit or recognizing some of the costumes but not really fully knowing the mythology of mortal Kombat. so for me just kind of watching this trailer i think for a lot of fans who were into this franchise they were they were freaking out they were loving everything they saw and for me personally i really love the action sequences that we got in this trailer they seem fluid and crisp and i think for a film like this a, I want them to establish some kind of mythology, set up this movie for general audience members to like. Because again, when it comes to these franchise big budget films, in order for them to really have any kind of major success, whether it's on a streaming service or in theaters, you want to get the main primary fan base to enjoy these films and go out and see them, but also you want to make sure that you expand beyond that fan base and bring in general audience members. And for me, when it comes to something like this, I would consider myself to be a general audience member. And the trailer that they gave me, again, with the action sequences, seeing these really interesting characters, I thought it did enough that I would want to watch more and see what this film is about. About. So I hope that when it comes to writing this, a lot of it isn't a lot of inside the baseball because oh, the one big trap that I, I personally feel like a lot of video game adaptations to film really do get a bad break on is they have some really cool action sequences. They have some really interesting characters. But when it comes to story, a lot of it is inside the baseball. And it, remind, it could remind me a lot of what happened with Warcraft. Warcraft was labeled the film that would get the video game adaptation funk out of this this genre and into some kind of prosperity and unfortunately that didn't really work out to the benefit you had a lot of people again that were big fans of this franchise going to see this film which is again what you want but for general audience members when they went to go see the film they didn't really know what the hell they were watching and i remember watching and i went to see it with my dad and brother and we were just kind of looking at ourselves just not really knowing what the heck was going on enjoying some of the action sequences but but action sequences can only take you so far. Even if you're somewhat invested into the story, that's enough to maybe get people to at least enjoy a, a movie. So I hope with Mortal Kombat, they're able to do that. I, I love the the visual effects look amazing. Again, the characters look awesome. So I really am looking forward to this. And seeing it on the big screen, again, if you're if you're able to do so, it definitely would be great to, to do that. But seeing this on HBO Max, I don't know if it'll have that same effect. But again, this is really going to be the first true test, or really the second true test after Godzilla versus Kong of seeing these big anticipated franchises on a streaming service. Wonder Woman was the first one to do it. Wonder Woman 1984, Little Things, Judas and the Black Messiah. Again, those are movies that you can understand being in this HBO Max theater hybrid. Now comes a little bit more of a test of, again, Godzilla versus Kong, 
Mortal Kombat, Suicide Squad. What are those movies going to look like? And will people wait to go see it in theaters or will they all flock to watch it on HBO Max if that is the only avenue that they're able to do? So these next two films are going to be very key and Mortal Kombat is one of those. So what did you guys think about the Mortal Kombat trailer? Did you enjoy it? Did you not enjoy it? Let me know what you thought and leave your comments down below. All right. Now, staying within Warner Brothers and HBO Max, but moving over to the DC Universe, I want to talk a little bit about Zack Snyder's Justice League. And Deborah Snyder was on this podcast a few days ago, and I highly recommend it. They go into the full range of Deborah Snyder from her beginnings to becoming a producer, working with Zack Snyder. It's an incredible, basically two-hour interview. It was really, really good. If you have the time to listen to it, I highly recommend it. And Deborah Snyder talks about, obviously, Zack Snyder's Justice League. That's the next big thing that they have on their dock. And this is coming off the heels of the first kind of major trailer. Even though we got one on DC Fandom, a lot of the buzz is now percolating about this trailer that came out on Sunday. And so during the interview, they talked about Zack Snyder's Justice League and, and what it has meant for Deborah Snyder. And she really came in with some information from the producer side of what they've been able to do in the last few months when it comes to production of Zack Snyder's Justice League. And she addressed the the rumors and kind of confirmed a few things about the additional photography that was done way back in October when it was announced that Jared Leto's Joker would be involved in them. Ben Affleck would be coming back to shoot a little bit of additional photography. Ray Fisher, apparently Joe Mantanello, Deathstroke was going to be involved in the same thing with Amber Heard's Mara. And a lot of people were interested in saying, was it a lot of photography? Was it just a few scenes? What was it? And it seems like she clarified on what they shot in those days and it was really only a few days and it wasn't really a whole lot of scenes and this is what she had to say people kept thinking oh they went and they shot so much more stuff and i go we literally shot one scene like one additional scene i shot three days here that's it that's what we captured and so Really to hear that, it's basically confirmation that it seems like whatever the behind the scenes photos that we got of Joker in the Vanity Fair article last week and the little and the scene or the snippet of the scene that we're gonna get in Zack Snyder's Justice League between Batman and Joker and that whole crew. It seems like it's only going to be a small little portion, and now maybe she's holding back a little bit. Maybe she wants to hold some of the surprise, which, again, when it comes to a big comic book property like a Justice League or what we've gotten in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you want to obviously hold stuff back to get the fans excited and to see their reaction in real time to a lot of the surprises. And now I'm not saying that she they went back and shot four months. Obviously, it was only for a few days. And they got a lot of, not the whole crew, but a good portion of the crew back to shoot just these next few days. So it's going to be interesting to see how much is actually put into it. And Zach's even commented on saying that it's only really four extra additional minutes that was put into this cut when it comes to those additional days of photography that they got in October. So it just seems like they just wanted to add in Jared Leto's Joker which it seems like when you go back to the story of what Zack wanted to do 
with his five DCEU movie arc that he wanted to do from Man of Steel to what seemed to be an entire Justice League trilogy, that the Joker was going to be somewhat a part of that. And I think this was Zach having the the, the 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 blank check to do what he wanted to do. And because he wanted to put Joker in there, and you're not gonna have him obviously if you don't if you're not gonna return to this down the line, you wanna put that in, in there and maybe shorten up what he wanted to do in just a few scenes. So it seems like that is what they were able to do. And it's going to be exciting to see the, the dynamic between Joker and Batman. And, and Zack Snyder said that. He said, look, I can't go about leaving the DCU. This is my last time doing things with it without having this interaction between these iterations of these two iconic characters in this specific universe. So I think that's really exciting of where the, the Snyder Cut can really go from here and what we can anticipate in the coming days and weeks leading up to the release of it on HBO Max. And one of the other interesting things is the fact of kind of getting to this point of how we got to the Snyder Cut. And there's been multiple reports and there's already a book coming out about it. And I think there's going to be a lot more to come when this thing is finally released. And one of the interesting things that also Deborah Snyder pointed out was, again, how they got to this point working with Warner Brothers. And there's an interesting caveat before the official announcement came on May 20th of last year of finishing up the Snyder Cut, doing what they needed to do with the VFX, the sound. There was a point where Warner Brothers might have done something a little bit differently. And this, again, adds to, I think, the Cold War that's going on between Warner Brothers Pictures and the Snyder family. And this is what Deborah Snyder had to say about the the initial the initial plan for what Warner Brothers wanted to do with Snyder's cut of Just Sleep. This is what she had to say. When they approached us, we had to come up with an idea of what it was basically, uh, what it was because originally the studio was like, you can just put the cut out just the way it is. Zach's like, no, it's like a mismatch. Music we can't use. If I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it the right way or it's not going to be the right way. But to figure out in secret because we didn't know if it was going to be real. But just to figure out the cost of the visual effects and we were doing doing this kind of on our own. So we could put together a presentation that we could go to the studio with and a big part of the presentation was the fans and what that represented to them. I wish it had taken them less time because when we wouldn't be so under the gun to get it done, it still took them months to kind of figure it out. And again, it just kind of goes to the to the, 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 the pitter-patter between Zack Snyder, Deborah Snyder, and Warner Brothers Pictures at this current moment in time. And, and a lot of things seems like still aren't okay with them and, and the studio, which, again, it makes a whole lot of sense the way that things were kind of left off between them after the initial cut of Justice League. So... Again, when it comes to this version, and I said it on Monday when talking about the the Zack Snyder trailer, it's the fact that this is really all Warner Media and HBO Max now. This is HBO Max really first major big property on their hands. 
again, I said, of course, they have Mortal Kombat coming out. They have Godzilla vs. Kong coming out on HBO Max along with in theaters, but they didn't create that. They didn't put their their division's money into those projects. Those are things that they are being given to acquire eyes onto their streaming service. But for Zack Snyder's Justice League, they apparently put in around $70, $80 million to get this thing done, finishing the visual effects, doing the additional photography in October, putting in new music and, and finishing the score. And also when you have this marketing campaign that's coming out, that's probably a few additional million dollars. So I wouldn't be surprised if this thing probably goes over $100 million, which for any other movies that isn't a comic book property or any kind of major franchise property, that is a big budget to have. That's that's what a mid-level budget film would love to have in any studio on any given film. So there's a big investment in this for Warner Media for HBO Max, and they want to see this thing succeed. And again, whether we get more in the future remains up in the air at this point. I wouldn't count on it personally. But again, you never know. We didn't think we would get this thing and the fans pushed for it hard enough that it, it came about. So we'll see what happens. We'll see where this goes. But for Deborah Snyder to talk about this, I think, again, if you listen to the whole interview, I highly recommend it, but it's broken up into chapters. So if you just want to hear about Justice League, more information about it, or she also talks about the controversy between BVS and, and her husband's movies and, and how they always draw controversy wherever they go and and it's it really is true when you look at his filmography from 300 which is probably his most universally acclaimed film Watchmen is probably his second best and, and maybe Man of Steel and Watchmen you can argue against both of those but Man of Steel is controversial it's an it's a debate between that movie same thing with BVS and now Justice League so th- there's always this this back and forth when it comes to his movies for better or for worse and she talks about that a lot and I, and I found it very very interesting and to kind of get more of an insight of you without talking to Zack Snyder, but to get it from his significant other, his producing partner, a great producer in her own right as well. It's great to kind of get another another interesting take on things and another perspective on seeing how all this plays out from somebody who's been there. And so I think it's, it's absolutely incredible. And both of their careers have just been on, on another level of just craziness. And it's going to be very interesting to see, again, the response for this. And again, to, to, to listen to that whole interview and, and how she responds to the fact that, look, with, with BVS, that that is what it is. And critics might not like Zach for, for what he does. And there's always controversy. And I respect where she comes from in that sense. And, and, it, and it's understandable. She's going to stick up, obviously, for her husband. But she, again, believes in the work that he does. As a producer, she sees the eye that Zach has for visuals and has a unique way of telling stories that are very unconventional and obviously we see that happening with the DCU not just with Justice League but with Man of Steel and obviously BVS was something that I don't think a lot of people expected to be what they thought it turned out to become in the end so again I think this is just another crazy story in the legacy of Zack Snyder and what he's going to bring in. This is going to be a big one for him. So we'll see what happens, but I love the answers and I loved the the interview that Deborah Snyder gave. It was, it was absolutely remarkable. Again, highly recommend it. If you have two hours of your time or if you only have a few minutes, check out the different chapters that are a part of that conversation. There's It's a wide-ranging interview. It's absolutely amazing. And again, she's somebody that you don't always hear a lot from. It's always, you hear a lot of stuff from Zack, especially with everything going on 
on with the Snyder Cut and in DC, it's always been Zach kind of talking. So to hear another person's voice on it, somebody who is close to Zach and has worked with him throughout his career, it was really kind of cool to see and to hear more about Deborah Snyder and learn more about her. It was really, really cool. So again, highly recommend checking out the interview if you have a chance. And again, hearing her quotes on all that that is going on right now was really, really interesting. So I can't wait. Again, I, I really am interested in seeing Justice League. I really, really am. And I'm really curious to see how it all comes to a head, how it all happens and the weeks leading up to the buzz because the marketing campaign is going to be pushing now that we're really a month away from this film coming out. It's it's almost here and there's going to be a lot of buzz about it. There's going to be people that see it and for maybe the entirety of March, there's going to be more debate about it. Oh, what do you think about it? What, what Did you like it? Did you not like it? I didn't like this. I didn't like that. So again, Zack Snyder's films create debate for better or for worse. So I wouldn't expect nothing less from this movie and I'm really excited again to see where it all leads. So what did you guys think about Deborah Snyder's comments regarding Zack Snyder's Justice League, especially when it came to the reshoots or the additional photography that they did in October, only lasting a few days, only being one scene? Do you think it was really one scene? Do you think she's keeping a little secret to, to keep fans off bay to surprise them of what they could get in the four-hour cut? Let me know what you think and leave your thoughts below. Now I'm going to move on to the Star Wars universe now and talk about Another highly controversial issue. More so, this is a very highly controversial issue and and highly pointed topic. More so than the Snyder Cut. That's more about the fanboy stuff. This is stuff that affects a lot of people in the real world sense. And that is, of course, Gina Carano and the and being let go by Lucasfilm last week from The Mandalorian after putting out just some awful, awful stuff on social media. And now we have an idea of more of what led to Gina Carano being let go from a galaxy far, far away. And this comes from a Hollywood Reporter article talking about the the Cardoon character. And of course, Cardoon was supposed to be a big feature Moving forward in the Star Wars universe, it was highly suspected that she was going to have her own show. And again, now that it's kind of been pushed off a little bit from from this now that uh, for her firing, there's a lot of questions of what's going to come about with Cara Dune as a character. And that's what the Hollywood Reporter article gets into. So this is some of the information, not all of it. If you want to check out the rest of the article, go to The Hollywood Reporter. But this is some of the big snippets that come from the piece. And this is them talking about leading up to Disney's Investor Day with Rangers of the New Republic and the things that they were doing with Gina Carano behind the scene. In Carano's case, the move to cut ties had been brewing for some time. In the months leading up to Disney's Investor Day, presented December 10th, Carano's agents at UTA were negotiating for the actress to receive to receive a sizable bump for a planned spinoff of Disney Plus's The Mandalorian that was to star her fan-favorite character, Cara Dune. The actress, whose sources say made $25,000 to $50,000 per episode of The Mandalorian, was poised to be touted during the presentation, in which Kathleen Kennedy announced 10 new Star Wars shows including Rangers of the New Republic, a series that seemed tailor-made for Carano. The decision to banish Carano from the Disney Kingdom went higher than Mandalorian creator Jon Favreau and was made by Lucasfilm executives. Carano, sources say, had repeatedly been warned by those around her about her social media behavior, with the actress even noting publicly in September that her Mandalorian co-star Pedro 
Elijah Pascal, who has a trans sibling, educated her about the use of pronouns after a social media flare-up. She knew it was going to alarm people, says one person in her orbit of her recent post. Why would you put Favreau in that position? And according to the article as well, there is no work being done right now to recast the Cara Dune character. So again, a lot of stuff to take away from this article. The fact that it does seem like... Gina Carano was going to get her own Disney Disney Plus spinoff show, and it was going to be Rangers of the New Republic. And it, again, this this talks this this really goes more beyond Gina Carano, and it really kind of goes to the the system of a studio in talking about how much how much is enough before you fire somebody for the comments that they've made it and and this isn't the first time that disney has been in these waters they've been in it plenty of times beforehand and the article also talks about how lolita wright from black panther said some things that maybe wouldn't go over well and they decided to blow over that and the star of mulan said some things about her home country in hong kong that didn't really go over well around the world but they just decided to let that kind of go and and as long as it didn't affect the press, then they were kind of fine with that. And it seems like once they got the word of, of the warning, the stern warning of don't do this again or don't do this. And you've seen Lolita take down her Twitter account and and the star of Mulan. You didn't really hear anything during the press of Mulan. But then you see something like James Gunn, where a lot of his old tweets were brought up and Disney fired him. But then they brought him back to direct Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. So what? But how much is enough? And it seems like Disney gave her a lot of Gina Carano a lot of leeway to for this. And it seems like really, again, this is really her own doing. And again, I've always said, and I said it when the the day after Gina Carano got fired, I'm all for somebody advocating for free speech. I'm somebody who listen. This is a free country. You can say what you want. But like actions, words have consequences. And again, if I were to go into a place and say what I said, I'd be fired from my job. Or it's like a social media post. And I've heard this from my teachers from college and high school always say, if you ever go for a job interview, make sure you watch what you monitor on social media. Because that's one of the things if they see that, oh, this guy, this girl, this guy likes to party or they do things that could compromise the company, you might not get that job. And that's exactly the case here where if you say something to your work colleagues or if you put stuff on on social media, that's exactly the same exact thing and you'll be fired. So I think for for Gina Carano, it seems like they tried to work it out with her and it just you push it and push it and push it and you don't say you're sorry or you, you take it back or you don't express those views as strongly as you might, then you, you, consequent, actions have consequences. Words have consequences. So I think that's really the takeaway when it comes to this whole situation. And of course, the, the big question in terms of the fandom moving forward is, of course, what do you do with, with the cartoon character? And again, it seems like Disney and Lucasfilm aren't going to move forward with the Cara Dune character at this particular moment in time. And again, I think that is a smart decision on their part because when again, when you think of the Cara Dune character, unfortunately, whoever, if anyone would ever take over that character, it's like the opposite of kind of Chadwick Boseman in a way. Whereas you want to 
you want to you want to pay homage to the icon you want to make sure that you hold up the legacy and if somebody were to take over the t'challa role that would be a very hard thing to do because people are going to see chadwick boseman and the same thing can be applied here for all the 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 wrong reasons for why if you somebody were to, were to take over that character all you would see is car is gina carano and if you're another actor coming into that you don't want to be associated with that whatsoever and it's not like at the end of Mandalorian season two, they really painted Cara Dune's character to have a prominent role moving forward. It really, if you look at the Mandalorian season two finale, other than the story arc moving forward for the Mandos when it comes to the Dark Saber and Bo-Katan and, and Din Djarin, everything else kind of very felt wrapped up like in a nice neat bow tie. If this thing were to ever get canceled in season two, which obviously it's not going to, it, it has a season three and more seasons to probably follow afterwards. So it's not like they painted themselves in a story corner where what can we do with, with Cara Dune's character? We have no way of getting out of this. We're going to have to get really creative. They can just... Mandalorian season three can take place months, even a year after everything that happened in the season two finale. And she's off doing her own adventures. And you can still do the Rangers of the New Republic show because, again, you didn't announce Cara Dune was going to be a part of it. So you can have a whole new cast of people be a part of that show and continue the story of how that will intersect moving forward with this big story that you have going forward with the Mandalorian, Ahsoka Tano, and Rangers of the New Republic. So... All those shows can still continue, and for the Cardoon character, it makes sense for them to retire it because, again, for any actor, it, it's going to be hard to get the stench off of that character when you're going to remember Gina Carano for that. So, again, hearing all this stuff, it's, it's not surprising, and, again, for Disney, it, they always – again, they always find themselves – in this situation and, and again for them it's they hire the people that they think they're going to do the best at John Favreau had a lot of confidence in Gina Carano and again it says in the article where she just kept doing this and John Favreau just you're putting him in, in an uncomfortable position so for as a showrunner you want to keep your characters you want to keep the actors and keep some kind of stability going forth in the show and not have a lot of of problems behind the scenes but if this thing is going on and people feel uncomfortable and it seemed like Pedro Pascal was trying to help her like she had multiple opportunities to again she doesn't have to change her views or anything but to, to help be sensitive to a lot of this stuff that is going on and she just didn't take that opportunity and again don't bite the hand that feeds you and she really could have had an, an amazing career with this uh, again you're you're making twenty five thousand dollars to fifty thousand dollars and you only started really six to seven episodes of a, of a of two seasons that only really had 16 episodes in total and you were probably gonna have a pay bump if you were the star of your own show so it, again it, it's it's a sad situation to see it could have been avoided but again you live at studios and and executives and showrunners, actors, you live and you learn from something like this and we'll see where it goes. But again, for the Cardoon character, I don't think this is really going to, for for Lucasfilm, for, for John Favreau and Dave Filoni, I don't think this really paints them 
into any kind of corner whatsoever. And again, I think it, it, it worked out for them in the best way for them in the end with all this. So what do you guys think about all this stuff going on with, with Gina Carano, her firing, the details going into it? What do you think Lucasfilm will do with the Cardoon character? Do you think they will not recast it or do you think they will down the line? Let me know what you think and leave your thoughts below. And the final thing that I want to talk about on the Sam Vassell podcast today is another little bit of a Scorsese controversy that's come out today and really this whole week. And obviously Martin Scorsese is one of the great filmmakers of all time and he doesn't really strike up a whole lot of controversy when it comes to doing something that's awful or illegal but he strikes up a lot of debate when it comes to the film community he did it in 2019 when talking about Marvel and and comic book movies and how they're roller coasters and theme parks not actual cinema and that really sparked a whole debate when I was still at Hofstra I literally was in a, a class that talked about the Marvel Cinematic Universe and one of the big debates was at that time about Marty and his comments about that. So it really sparked a debate between Hollywood and people that might agree with him, that might not. So it, again, it was a sometimes it wasn't a healthy debate, sometimes it wasn't, but that's the kind of controversy that he struck up. And it seems like less or so now than what he did in 2019, but he kind of struck again this time in an article in paying homage to the Italian filmmaker Federico Fellini, and he is one of the most iconic Italian filmmakers, one of the most iconic filmmakers really of all time, if you're a diehard cinema person like Scorsese is, and in kind of paying tribute to this filmmaker, he kind of started off this essay going off on streaming and cinema and protecting cinema, and this is what he, what he had to say in the beginning of his tribute to this filmmaker. As recently as 15 years ago, the term content was heard only when people were discussing the cinema on a serious level and it was contrasted with and measured against form. Then gradually it was used more and more by the people who took over media companies, most of whom knew nothing about the history of the art form or even cared enough to think that they should. Content became a business term for all the moving images, a David Lean movie, a cat video, a Super Bowl commercial, a superhero sequel, and a serious episode. It was linked, of course, not to the theatrical experience, but to home viewing on the streaming platforms that have come to overtake the movie-going experience just as Amazon overtook physical stores. In the movie business, which is now the mass visual entertainment business, the emphasis is always on the word business, and value is always determined by the amount of money to be made from any given property. In that sense, everything from Sunrise to La Strada to 2001 is now pretty much wrung dry and ready for the art film swim lane on a streaming platform. Those of us who know the cinema and its history have to share our love and our knowledge with us as many people as possible and we have to make it crystal clear to the current legal owners of these films that they amount to much much more than mere property to be exploited and then locked away they are among the greatest treasures of our culture and they must be treated accordingly now again for people who will say well scorsese just had a movie that premiered on a streaming service and he's going to have another one in the next year or two on apple tv plus and he does acknowledge that listen streaming platforms have been a big benefit for me in making The Irishman, but uh, again, 
I, I can understand why people have a problem with Scorsese said, and I do have a little bit of a problem with, with what Scorsese said about streamers and the fact that you have people like Alfonso Coral making movies on streamers, and he's made great artistic films. You have just an abundance of filmmakers. Uh, George Clooney is making films on a streaming service. Spike Lee just did a movie on a streaming service on Netflix. David Fincher just did one. Aaron Sorkin technically didn't do one on a streaming service. It was made for the theatrical experience but he uh, he worked with paramount and he allowed it to move over to a streamer joe and anthony russo are doing cherry on apple tv plus people are making artistic work on streaming services but when it comes to what scorsese is saying in the context that he's saying it in and essays and people have made essays all the time obviously if you've done school you've had to do papers before in the beginning when you're making opening statements opening paragraphs you kind of had to set up the, the thesis in a way set up the problem that you're trying to make and i think that's exactly what Maurice scorsese is trying to do in paying tribute to this filmmaker who is all about film and cinema and Obviously, in the essay, you can tell that Mar Marty is loves this guy and he's known this guy for a long time. And he has a real, it, it, it's like a fanboy teaching, or it's like the student appreciating the the master uh, for what he was able to teach him. And this isn't something that's going to go away anytime soon. Mar Martin Scorsese is a protector of that cinema. He, he thinks of himself kind of as a knight of the holy grail of protecting this art form that has been exploited, which... Again, I, I necessarily don't think it has been exploited, but I can understand from what where Marty Scorsese is coming from because you have guys and, and directors all around from that 60s, 70s era that were just all auteur filmmakers that were able to do anything they wanted to do. And it wasn't like they had a, a blank check to do it. They obviously butted heads with studios to do that. And obviously we're, gonna, we're seeing all these adaptations of the making of these movies happening in the next few years between both a movie and a television show about Francis Ford Coppola making The Godfather and we're going to have one with Ben Affleck directing about the making of Chinatown there was a lot of butting heads that went on but those films in the 70s and the 60s were are considered some of the greatest films of all time and so I think for Martin Scorsese he just he's from a different world than or a different time period than what we consider film to be now. And, and we should cherish somebody like a Martin Scorsese because, again, knock on wood, hopefully we have him around for a long time to pick his brain and still get the masterwork that he gives us right now. So I think for, for Martin Scorsese... I can understand where this is a big controversial issue, and I do have his issues for what he has to say. However, at the same time, I can I can understand where he's coming from and what he is trying to say with this. I just wouldn't be as frank as he was, but again, at the same time, the, the it wasn't like it was just an essay about the state of cinema right now. It was really, the context of it was about this loving tribute that he was making to this filmmaker that he grew up loving and appreciating, became a student of this guy's work. It was really a true inspiration for the master that we have now in Martin Scorsese. So I can understand where he's coming from, the context of it. And again, it, there's a reason why people say you shouldn't judge a book by its cover. And when it comes to this article, when you see all the headlines about it, yes, the big points taken away is going to be what he said about streamers and, and protecting cinema. And cinema is not what it is now. And it's just it's just business. And, and that's it. It's not an art form anymore. And we need to protect that art form. All, that's what people are going to talk about. 
but again, in the context of what he's trying to do, it's, there's a bigger meaning behind it. And I can appreciate where Martin Scorsese is coming from when he says something like this. And there are people that have that same mentality as Martin Scorsese. And I think we need people like that who just appreciate film for its art form. Because that's what it is. It's, it's another form of art, like painting is, or like, I'm blanking on other forms of art. There's more than just painting and, and film, but television and music. So there's different art forms in expressing yourselves through art. And that's exactly what film is. And and But at the same time, painting, the painting industry, it's an industry. It's a business. Music's a business. Television's a business. All these different art forms are businesses as well. So again, people have that mindset, but you that's why they, they work together. They're like a yin and a yang, but there's always a strained relationship between the two of them. And that's just going to continue for the end of time, it seems like, at least for this business right now. So again, for Martin Scorsese making these comments, I can understand where he's coming from more so with this than really what he said about Marvel. But again, it goes to the fact that it's a it's a different time, it's a different breed, it's a different filmmakers living who live through multiple different decades without having these big big blockbusters when it was really just about making art and cinema during the '60s or really the '70s and the '80s than what we have right now. So so what do you guys think about Martin Scorsese's comments? Let me know what you think down below and leave your thoughts. But with that down and out of the way, that will do it for this edition of the San Vassell Podcast. Once again, thank you so much for tuning in and be sure to check out my channel for more content. You check me out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, SoundCloud, and much more. Also, make sure to tune in on to the Ambiguous Podcast Solutions and be sure to check out the other amazing shows that are on there, such as You Mad Bro, the number one source to see what the internet is pissed off about on a weekly basis. Also, check out Goal Driven Professionals, geared toward improving client relations, return on investment, and customer acquisition costs for independent businesses and services. Also, check out The Daily Grind, a weekly motivational podcast with Kelly Johnson, giving you everyday tips and key takeaways on reaching your goals. Also, along the way, make sure to check out these other amazing shows on the podcast solutions, such as Wrestle Attic Radio, Fretzelmania Podcast, and Midnight Showing. You can check these out and so much more on the website, ambiguouspodcastsolutions.com. Also, on Facebook and Twitter at Real Ambiguous. And if you want to check out Canopy Treehouse, use the coupon code AMBIGUOUS. Also, when you get a chance, make sure to check out my YouTube channel. You can find me at the San Basel Podcast, where I talk to the latest directors and actors on everything that's going on on their latest films. You can also find me on Twitter at Basel Samuel. That's B-U-S-S-E-L-L-S-A-M-U-E-L. Yeah, it's B-U-S-S-E-L-L-S-A-M-U-E-L. And also on Facebook at San Basel. Once again, everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. And until next time... Keep on screening.